This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Teachers, parents, and lawmakers across the country are grappling with what to do about school violence. In Colorado, something unique happened after the Arapahoe High School shooting two years ago. Several independent reports after the attack were commissioned and this month were released to the public. The reports conclude a lot more could have been done to prevent the tragedy. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine joins us to talk about what the reports could mean for all Colorado schools. Welcome, Jenny. Nice to be here, Andrea. First, how did these reports come about? In 2013, there was a school shooting at Arapahoe High School. 17-year-old Claire Davis was shot by troubled classmate Carl Pearson, who then shot himself. The Davis family was frustrated. They couldn't get information from the district about what transpired in the months prior to the shooting. They eventually entered into an arbitration agreement with Littleton Public Schools, and that meant full public disclosure of the events that led to the shooting. Three separate reports were commissioned. In exchange, the family wouldn't sue the district, and the Davises said it was their gift to the state so that others could learn from the tragedy. The Davises were also the driving force behind legislation that passed last year, the Claire Davis School Safety Act. Yes. Starting next year, victims of school violence can sue a school or a district if they feel the school didn't demonstrate reasonable care in protecting students and staff from, quote, reasonably foreseeable acts of violence. A companion bill set up a legislative committee to study how to help students in crisis and make schools safer. That committee is charged with defining what steps a school must take to show reasonable care. The three reports just released will inform that definition. Claire's father, Michael Davis, told the committee Friday his family wants to make sure schools don't miss the opportunities that were missed at Arapahoe High. This process is no longer about our precious daughter, Claire, nor is it about Carl Pearson, who is a teenager in crisis who we believe would have made very different choices if a helping hand had reached out from a system that was designed to not miss the opportunities to help him. This process is now about the next student in crisis who's on the brink of hurting themselves or others. Jenny, that same day, three independent groups presented their studies to the committee. What did they tell them? Well, first, there were systemic problems. You had a student, the shooter, Carl Pearson, who had not just a series of escalating outbursts in class, but exhibited many other warning signs. But no one person knew about all of them put together. Here's John Nicoletti, a national expert on violence risk assessment and a co-author of one of the reports. One individual knew this person was engaging this concerning behavior. Another individual knew he was buying guns. Another individual knew he made threats. None of these folks talked to each other. So it seemed like a series of isolated incidents. And why weren't people talking to each other about Carl Pearson at Arapahoe High School? Now, this is key. All of the reports found that school staff just didn't understand a federal student privacy law called FERPA and were overly cautious about sharing information. Here's Bill Woodward of CU's Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence. It got to the point where even though there was a student of concern who had all these problems, then people felt like they couldn't share that information with each other. And then sometimes when they asked, well, why can't I share it? Somebody said FERPA. 
but the federal law applies only to educational records being shared outside the school. It doesn't apply to behavioral concerns about a student. And this isn't just a problem at Arapahoe High. Experts said there is widespread misunderstanding about FERPA among educators across Colorado and nationwide. And it's a huge problem because there needs to be a team approach with one person monitoring the flow of information on each student. So if there's a pattern, it's picked up on. Okay, so there's this lack of understanding about privacy laws, um, and that played into the tragedy. What else did they find? The school's district's threat assessment for spotting a troubled teen was complex, confusing, and essentially ineffectual. Training was spotty. Many mistakes were made, so the shooter, Carl Pearson, was placed at low risk. So nobody was monitoring his behavior, and he wasn't given support services. And is this a problem in other Colorado schools or just in the Littleton School District? Well, here's the problem. We don't know for sure. This is a local control state, which means individual districts oversee curriculum and behavior at schools. So we don't know precisely what goes on in all schools. But some good news. Chris Harms is an expert on school safety, and she actually sits on the committee advising the legislature on this issue. She says, if you look at the data from school districts across the state, it's obvious that many are doing something right. In fact, she says Colorado is really ahead of the curve on threat assessments because of Columbine. I know Jeffco, for instance, did over 600 threat assessments last year. They have school teams. They have a district team that reviews them. I know the Cherry Creek School District, I think, is up to almost 400 this year alone. So many of our large schools have been doing threat assessments for years now and very successfully. But... We don't really know whether these assessments are evidence-based, and all three studies recommend auditing schools to check on that. But audits are not cheap. $2,000 per school is one estimate. And rural districts in particular struggle with the costs. And when we talk about risk assessment, it's not just teachers and school administrators who play a role. Kids might have a sense that there's a risk, too. Um, Did studies look at that? Definitely. Uh, Research shows us that in at least 80 percent of cases, a potential shooter has leaked information about what they were planning to at least one person. In fact, for more than a decade, Colorado has had a website and a hotline called Safe to Tell. It's an anonymous way to report tips about bullying, suicide intervention, assaults, or, or weapons at school. Its usage is really going up. But even though Arapahoe students had heard threats, knew the shooter had guns, kids there didn't use Safe to Tell. Sarah Goodrum co-authored one of the three studies, and she says there's a reason for that. At the time of the shooting, the school and the district did not have a policy on formally training students or staff in Safe to Tell. At a recent press conference, the new Littleton district superintendent mentioned that they tell kids about the program at assemblies and have posters on school walls, but Two studies said for Safe to Tell to really be effective, there should be formal training in small groups. What we saw was a breakdown in the detectors. That's John Nicoletti, a co-author of one of the three reports. The detectors he's talking about are the students, teachers, bus drivers, the ones who hear threats. We saw, first of all, students observing behaviors and not reporting it. What would cause kids not to want to report. We saw several different things. The main one we saw, kids don't know what to report. They're not trained. How do they know, hey, this is something I should report? Some of the teachers didn't know what to report. And another very concerning thing we saw is 
teachers, adults, engaged in unilateral risk assessment. They saw certain behaviors that we would consider as concerning, and they were saying, ah, boys will be boys. Yeah, no need to report that. A lot of the problems we've been talking about are systemic problems, training problems, but you mentioned earlier that the researchers also focused on something else. Yes, uh, school culture. And here I'm talking about how people in the school relate to one another and how open the school is to criticism. CU Boulder's Sarah Goodrum said her study found evidence of groupthink at Arapahoe. The school culture did not appear to allow much room for failure, and it tended to discourage questioning and criticism and reflection. She points out that focusing on being the best high-achieving school did have ramifications. So when teachers disagreed with an approach to a student's concerning behaviors, the discipline that was administered and concern was expressed, some of the deposition testimony revealed that not only were teachers not heard when they wanted to express that concern, but in some cases, teachers felt that they could not even voice that concern. Okay, I've heard this again and again from teachers at other schools who anonymously say administrators aren't taking a student's behavior seriously. And I've heard repeatedly about pressure on teachers even to not report disruptive behavior. So there's this clash between the transparency and openness needed to keep a school safe and a district or school's desire to maintain an image that, you know, all is well or perfect. The report said a culture of openness and critical self-evaluation is key. They recommended school climate surveys, and many schools in Colorado do them. But again, we don't know how many precisely or their quality. So all three studies recommend lots of improvements in terms of detecting and identifying students who need help and potentially could be a threat. But did they talk about how to follow up with a troubled student? Yes, the reports discussed the critical need for mental health treatment and follow-up and monitoring of students in crisis. But this gets me to one of the biggest deficiencies many experts see in Colorado schools, and that is money for mental health support. Those are the school social workers and psychologists and school counselors. Numbers here are far, far below national guidelines. For social workers, I'm talking a tenth of what they should be. So it raises a question. If you remember at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about the new law. Um, Starting next year, schools can be held liable for school violence. Can a school really be held accountable if they are severely lacking in mental health resources? That's something school safety expert Christine Harms thinks about. If I do have a student of concern, for instance, what do I do with them if I don't have mental health resources either in my school or even, um, you know, very few mental health resources in my community? Um, And the last thing I think any school educator really wants to do is just suspend a student or expel a student because we're all in the business of education and we want to give students not only an education but the supports that they need. But if the supports aren't there, I think it's going to be difficult for our small schools to have the resources to meet the requirements of Senate Bill 213. Jenny, how have lawmakers reacted to these reports? 
They call the reports a must-read for any school administrator. In fact, the Littleton superintendent emailed the report to Colorado's 178 superintendents in the hopes that some may realize, you know, this could have been my school. Do I have these recommendations in place? Senate President Bill Cadman sits on the School Safety Committee, and at the end of Friday's four-hour hearing on the Arapahoe reports, he said parents aren't built to attend the funerals of their children. And for all the parents and the teachers and the staff of the more than 800,000 kids, uh, this is a call for action. And few issues in 16 years here have risen to this level. Frankly, maybe one other issue. It has to remain in the top of the top of our priorities. So lawmakers seem motivated to sponsor legislation, perhaps pass more mandates for schools. But if it's not backed up with resources, some fear it won't mean much. Thanks, Jenny. You're welcome. Jenny Brundine covers education for CPR News. You can learn more about these three independent reports put together after the Arapahoe High School shooting three years ago at CPRnews.org. Coming up, two stories about victims of cyberbullying, one that's real and one that's fictional but still rings true. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Today, we're going to hear the story of a girl from Highlands Ranch who was the victim of cyberbullying. Kiana Ariano was a freshman in high school when she tried to commit suicide back in 2013. She nearly died and is now confined to a wheelchair. Ever since then, her mom, Christy, has been speaking out against cyberbullying. Next Tuesday, she'll give a talk in Metro Denver right before a performance called Out of Bounds. It was developed by a traveling theater group, and it's meant to educate people about the trauma caused by bullying. More about that in a minute, but first we talk with Christy Ariano about her daughter, who's now 17. Welcome, Christy. Thank you, Andrea. How did you find out about Kiana and the fact that she was being bullied? Um, It wasn't until after the suicide attempt that it was brought to my attention. Some of her friends shared uh, the screenshots of the social media site that she was on, and that's when I got to see the content of the bullying comments. And what was the nature of the bullying? Um, It was um, very derogatory. You know, um, they knew some personal information about my daughter, which makes me believe, you know, it was either somebody in her circle of friends or somebody that her circle had shared information with. Um, very um, taunting in, you know, telling her that she should kill herself, um, telling her that they would help her by, you know, snapping her neck and, and those kinds of things and just calling her derogatory names and very hurtful content. Do you have a sense of how long the bullying went on before Kiana tried to commit suicide? I don't. I know she was struggling. I mean, we started seeing signs of change, you know, as early as March of that year. Um, I found a journal later on that in October, you know, there were people calling her names and that sort of information. The screenshots that I saw were, you know, went on about a week before the actual event itself. And then the night before is when it really got ugly. And I think that was probably what kind of tipped her over the the edge. What did you do when you found out about it? We had already been um, in touch with a detective from Douglas County, um, and we turned over her electronic devices to them, you know, her computer, her phone. Um, And at the time, we were told, you know, even though we had these proof of these texts and these threats, Um, that the current laws couldn't support us pursuing it and figuring out who actually did the bullying. You didn't find out 
anyone who was doing the bullying or? No, we were never able to uncover who it actually was. And and that was important to us just to ensure they weren't, you know, doing it to other people. We really wanted to make sure that that person stopped their their bad behavior. Eventually, you testified at the state legislature, and they passed a law in your daughter's name, Kiana's Law. It went into effect last summer. What does it do exactly? It's uh, make cyberbullying. They they updated the current harassment law to include cyberbullying language, and it makes it a misdemeanor um, crime punishable up to six months in jail or up to $750 in fines. And the law hasn't been in effect for very long, but any sense of how it's working now? I haven't really followed up on, on that part of it. You know, I do my best to make sure people are aware of it and, you know, get to do events like this one in Parker. Um, but I haven't really followed up on, you know, the the legal aspect of it. And yes, you're set to speak this coming Tuesday um, before a play about cyberbullying. Um, let's bring in Sean Lewis, who's on the line and is directing the play, which is called Out of Bounds. He's with Working Group Theater based in Iowa City. And that group travels around the country doing productions about different issues. Uh, the play isn't connected directly to Kiana's story, but has many of the same elements. Um, and Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Give us a quick synopsis of the play. Basically, there's a student named Amy who has come to a new school. Um, she's a bit androgynous in her look. It's middle school, so she's a bit of a tomboy. And a group of popular girls start to tease her about her, about her uh, appearance, and they ask her to send a more provocative picture of herself to them to prove that she is a girl. Um, she sends the photo, and they end up taking a screenshot of it and kind of proliferating it around the school and continue to harass her online throughout the production. And there's a scene in the play where the mother of the girl who's being bullied visits a youth center. Sean, set this uh, clip up for us. She's having a conversation with someone who works at the youth center. Yes, at this point, um, Amy, the character in the play, uh, who's the daughter of Allison, who you'll hear, has found out that there's um, high school boys at a local recreation center that have now gotten hold of the photos and are using them themselves to harass her. So the mother goes to try and confront these boys and ends up running into one of the mentors who runs the, the space that they hang out at after school. And here's that clip. How old is she? Fourteen. And you're sure it's her? I mean, yes. people can Photoshop photos, they look real, but they're not. No, she has a scar on her shoulder. You know, this photo was supposed to be gone, non-existent. Do you want to know how I found it? By Googling my daughter's name and adding the word slut. I don't have any good ideas. I don't have any ideas at all, but I think the people who did this should apologize. I think that's worth something, you know? I want them to look her in the face and see that there is a person and not just a picture. And I hate the fact that I have to show people this to get them to take me seriously. You, you know what? Never mind. This shows how devastating bullying can be for children and their parents, and it also shows the powerful effect cyberbullying can have because so many people have access to the information. Sean, how do you convey that on stage? Well, the play is derived from um, hundreds of interviews that we did, and so it's done primarily. We use the um, use monologues in between, and the main character of Amy is keeping a graphic novel, like a journal of her experiences throughout the performance. So those are projected, the images she's creating are projected throughout the show. 
to give us a sense of the emotional toll that the um, that the technology is is causing her. Um, it becomes this kind of monster that follows her in the way that she views it. So you have some of the text messages up on the screen behind the play. Yeah, we use the projections of that and and to to help embolden it. And is this a production for both adults and kids? That was our dream when we were making it. Absolutely, is it takes perspectives of the kids as well as the perspectives of the adults. Um, the play kind of is about an hour and twenty minutes, and it's basically split in half. And our fantasy was that you know parents and kids could go together, and the parents would watch the first half of the show and get a sense of what their kids are experiencing it at school and also how they view it internally. And then the second half of the show, the kids could actually watch it and see like what their administrators as well as their parents were going through and the difficulties that they run into so that both of them have a better understanding of what goes on when this problem begins to rear its head. And, and Sean, you're showing this play to audiences across the country. What's your goal here? What's the goal is we kind of look at our shows as um, we attempt them to be the beginning of a town hall meeting. Is It's a way to gather people together who may not get in the same room as each other. You know, a parent who feels completely abandoned by the administration may find themselves in the room with administrators. But in our talkbacks, we've seen questions posed that our cast doesn't answer, but actually other people in the room we suddenly see them stand up and start to speak and these kind of connections made. And that, that's the overall goal of basically every production we do. You're trying to create a conversation within a community. Absolutely. And, um, yes, and, and go ahead. And to introduce people, and to introduce people to, to other people in their community that they may not realize they have access to. And Christy, your daughter's experience was more than two years ago. There's more awareness about cyberbullying now. Do you think that's helping to reduce the number of these kinds of incidents, or is it hard to tell? Um, it's hard to tell, but I think just that it's actively being talked about, you know, will help us guide guide us to some of the solutions. I think, you know, our goal was to increase awareness with the parents and, you know, make sure that parents are talking to their kids and and just being aware that this could happen and how devastating it is. And parents can feel lost in this world of social media and electronics. I can speak for myself. And you can really lose control of what your kids are doing on a day-to-day basis with their computers and iPhones. What advice uh, What advice do you, either of you have for parents who, who may be watching for signs of bullying? Sean? I think, one, knowing the sites, which is difficult because they change on such a regular basis, but I think also one thing that helps with the students that we work with and do workshops with is, is also letting them know the power that they have with this technology and the responsibility that comes with it. I mean, they're basically the first generation to grow up with this level of contact and interaction with each other where bullying doesn't end at school or where you can follow somebody home. And so letting them actually understand the reality of that, I think, goes a, a long way. Christy, how about you? Any advice? I, I think just talking to your kids and, and, as you said, you know, being aware of what sites they're on, but also just asking them, you know, what's going on in your day? Are people being treating you kindly? I mean, if you ask them if they're bo- being bullied, they may not 
be forthright with that or forthcoming with that information, but just asking them, was anybody in kind to you today? How did that make you feel? How did that happen? You know, I think they want to share that. They want to open up, but they're they're frightened, you know, to come to their parents and say, hey, somebody's picking on me and this is how it's happening because they're afraid of the retribution or being taken offline or or those kinds of things. So just keeping those lines of communications open with your children. And, and I suppose there's this risk that your child could be the bullier. Absolutely. Yep. And I think, you know, again, you know, to Sean's point, just talking about the responsibility of what that means to be online and how you're treating other people could really affect them. Christy, Sean, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Christy Ariano lives in Highlands Ranch. Sean Lewis is with Working Group Theater based in Iowa City and is directing Out of Bounds, a play about cyberbullying. Ariano will speak before the performance this coming Tuesday, February 3rd at the Pace Center in Parker. You can learn more at cprnews.org. Coming up next, scientists say they've found another planet in our solar system, but others aren't so sure. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Our solar system may have a ninth planet after all. Nine years after Pluto was demoted to dwarf status, scientists say they found a new planet that's much bigger than Pluto and also much farther away. Astronomer Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, and he joins us monthly to talk about space science. Welcome, Doug. It's good to be back. Scientists call this planet Planet Nine, and it's so far away it takes 10 to 20,000 years to orbit the sun. Uh, What else do you know about it? Well, uh, what we probably know about it, and I'll explain why it's probably later on, is that it's big. It's enormous. It's a big surprise. We thought we knew all the real planets, but here is this thing which is, uh, well, to put it in perspective— Pluto is a little smaller than our moon, and our moon is only a few percent of the mass of Earth. This new planet is probably 10 times the the mass of the Earth. It's huge. It's it's almost as big as Neptune or Uranus. But, of course, it's very, very, very far away. So it's just if it's going to be seen, and it hasn't been seen yet, it would just be the tiniest dot. But we still know that it's there. And um, do we know if it's rocky like Earth or is it gas like Jupiter? So, so that's a really good question. You know, since we haven't seen it, we don't know for sure. But um, the only rocky planets are the ones kind of close into the sun. The Earth, Mars, Venus, Mercury, it's very hot near the sun. And when planets were forming, the only thing that was stable in here close was rocky Way out in the solar system, you get big gaseous planets like Jupiter and Neptune and Uranus. So I think it's very, very likely it would look like Uranus or Neptune if we can see it. (laughs) And ironically, one of the discoverers of Planet Nine is responsible for the demotion of Pluto. He even wrote a book called How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. And I have to tell listeners that is a wonderful book. It's Uh a small book. It's very entertaining. And it tells you, better than uh, most any book I've read, how astronomers really work. Some are looking through telescopes, searching for things, but others are working with computers 
and predicting things for the telescope astronomers to look for. Mm-hmm. And and what makes him think he's found an actual planet? And, and do you agree with him? Um, I do. And the way I would describe it, so planets are supposed to go in predictable orbits. Um, Isaac Newton first figured out uh, the laws that govern planetary motion. Kepler, even before Newton, figured out that planets should go in an ellipse or egg-shaped orbit around the sun. Hmm. Uh, And most planets do. And even the dwarf planets way far out there near Pluto, Pluto and its friends, go in a predictable orbit. But if there is another unseen planet out there, the gravity from that unseen planet will pull on the things that we know and change their orbits just a bit. And that's what Mike Brown and his colleagues saw was happening, that uh, some of the known friends of Pluto, I like to call them, uh, were not behaving the way they should. And Mike Brown is the author of that book you mentioned. Um, He is. And and, uh, as long as we're making uh, uh, confessions, perhaps, I am one of the people also who voted Pluto off the island there in Prague. And that's because the eight regular planets all go around together. And the dwarf planets, the surprising new ones, move differently. And that's true of this new one, too. If you think of all of our planets going around, you could put them on a tabletop, and they'd be different sized circles or ellipses because they're moving in the same plane. That's the tabletop. But the new planets come in every which way, from the top, from the bottom, from different directions. So clearly, they're a different kind of family, and they had a different origin. So this is... um you know, a new planet and it acts differently than some of the others. I mean, that sounds like it's an anomaly then. You know, um, our definition of planet grows. Uh And as we learn more about the universe, we have to come up with new categories of things. Um, We even have to come up with new ways of naming things. Maybe we'll get to that later on. But uh, the reason, the other reason I voted Pluto off the island, besides the fact that it doesn't behave like the eight real planets, is there's a hundred friends of Pluto's. And for students, I was thinking of the poor students in school, you either memorize eight names or you memorize 108 names, right? Or fifth, or, or 200 names. Uh, but what is a surprise is that this is so much bigger than Pluto and farther. Pluto is 40 times farther away from the sun uh, than the Earth. But this new planet is hundreds of times farther away, way beyond Pluto. Mm. And it's big. And boy, that's a surprise. It's fascinating. And as you mentioned earlier, no one's ever seen Planet Nine. Why do scientists believe it's out there? You've talked about that a little sure. bit. but Because we've done this before. Uh-huh. Okay. And in fact, the planet Neptune was discovered exactly this way. Way back about 150 years ago, astronomers were studying the orbit of Uranus, the farthest known planet at the time, and it wasn't behaving. It also was deviating from its expected elliptical orbit. And a French theoretical astronomer named Urbain Le Verrier uh, did a lot of calculations by hand, and uh, he predicted that there must be another planet out beyond Uranus, changing its orbit. So he sent letters to all the French astronomers, and all of them said, eh, uh, you don't discover a planet with a ballpoint pen. That's an almost an actual quote. So they didn't look. 
And he got so upset, he sent the letter to a German astronomer who looked the very night that he got the letter. And within one hour, within one degree of where he was told to look, he found the planet Neptune. So it's sort of this backwards way of finding a planet. You don't see it. You just look at how things nearby behave. And there's this long history of that when it comes to finding things in space. You know, we don't just do that in our own solar system. Uh, We study the motions of stars nowadays. And if you look really closely and you see one of the stars in the sky moving back and forth over the course of several years— you know that there must be a planet orbiting that other star and pulling on it with the gravity. So gravity is a really useful tool. Things don't move out there in space unless there's a force on them. So if you see something behaving erratically, you know, even if you haven't seen it, you know something is out there pulling. Um, Predictions are made differently today than they were back in the 19th century, as you might guess, and as all of us might guess. And a lot of that work is done in Colorado. Uh, Has Colorado played a role in finding this Planet Nine? You know, I think with the techniques, um, there's a group of people up in Boulder, and, and they're actually pretty famous people now. They used to be kind of incognito, but one of them led the Pluto mission that just went flying past Pluto, Alan Stern. Mm-hmm. So we're getting, they're getting pretty famous. But another person who works there, Bill Botkey, is a specialist in computer models. And with a computer nowadays, it's so much easier than poor Leverrier, who had to do all the calculations with a ballpoint pen. Right. With a computer, you can uh, include the pull of gravity, not just of the sun, but of all the eight known planets and some of the dwarf planets. So you make a more complicated computer model, but it still is using the basic law of gravity. And if your model predicts how the planet moves, everything's fine. But if it doesn't, you know something's missing. You have to add another planet in the computer model. And that's how uh, Brown and Batagan found this new planet. They found that you could only explain all the motions if you added in a big new planet far out. Wow. And it's the kind of computer models they use in Boulder all the time. My guest is Doug Duncan, director of Boulder's Fisk Planetarium, and we're talking about a distant neighbor, very distant, Planet Nine, that scientists believe they've identified in our solar system. Planet Nine's existence hasn't been proven. Um, How confident are you that it's there? Uh, I give it 80%, very roughly, okay? Okay. Um, I think this method that we've been talking about of using the pull of gravity to clue you into something that hasn't been seen is very powerful. Having said that, since it's five to ten times farther away than Pluto, these are very delicate measurements. So they have predicted where in the sky this new planet should be. And if you have a very, very big telescope, and I don't mean you amateur astronomers out there. I mean professionals with a telescope the size of a house and a big digital camera, they will be taking pictures and they will be looking. And my prediction is if it's really there, somewhere between one and two or three years, we'll get a picture of it. Wow. And um, big question, uh, if it's proven, who gets to name it? Well, that's a fascinating question. Professional astronomers, and I belong to this group, have a group called the International Astronomical Union. And if you Google IAU, 
uh, and planet naming, it, it will tell you all the rules for naming uh, new dwarf planets like Pluto's friends, the, the rules for comets, lots of rules. There are no posted rules for new planets because mm. none of us expected to discover something big enough to be a planet. Nevertheless, there's a tradition of it being um, mythological, right, right? Right. And although the funny uh, – oh, and by the way, National Public Radio is holding a contest wow. for listeners to name well, Pluto. So you should Google NPR Planet Naming Contest. We may link it here yes, uh, at Colorado Yes, if you have Public some Radio. good ideas. Well, the funniest one I've heard so far is Pluto. Mm. <laughs> to go with Pluto. <laughs> okay. Um, but the leaders in the naming contest are Black Star and uh, Proserpina or Persephone, which mm. happen to be if you hard know, to say. If you know your mythology, that's the the woman that Pluto dragged to the underworld, mm -hmm. and so it would make some sense to go along with Pluto out there at the edge of the solar system. And, you know, it's so cold and dark out there. It's probably a lot like the underworld. I think we need a name that elementary school students can pronounce. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, you know, I, I had the golden book of mythology when I was a kid, and I thought it was exciting to learn strange names like Zeus and, and so forth. So I, I don't mind um, Persephone, and you can learn all about why you shouldn't eat pomegranates when they drag you to the underworld. So I, I'd probably vote for that. How likely is it that there's a planet 10 uh, and planet 11 out there? Well, now that we have found this surprisingly large planet way out there at the edge of the solar system, I, I, space is very big. There could be more. Hmm. And uh, by coincidence, five of the known planets in our solar system, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter, are all visible right now in the morning sky without a telescope. Oh, it's totally beautiful. You know, you got to get up about 6 o'clock. Okay. And every morning for about the next 10 days, there's going to be a marching show. The, the two bright planets are Venus, which is way over in the southeast and low in the sky, and then Jupiter, which is way over in the southwest, up by the moon tomorrow morning. So get up. By the moon is this bright glowing thing. It's not a UFO. That's Jupiter. Uh, a little bit to the left is Mars and then Saturn and then Venus. And so if you watch the moon uh, over the next five days, it'll march from Jupiter to Mars to Saturn to Venus, and it'll be beautiful every morning. And if you want a little help to spot these planets in the sky, you'll find a map at cprnews.org. Thanks, and, Doug. And also at Fisk Planetarium's oh, website. Okay. So visit us, too. Doug Duncan is the director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. Coming up, a thousand-year-old glacier near Boulder could be gone within 25 years. What's the big concern for water managers? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The thousand-year-old Arikari Glacier in the mountains west of Boulder is melting. Scientists think it could be gone in 25 years, and that's raising concerns about the state's water supplies. A new study produced by the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research says glaciers and other icy terrain in Colorado are like having an insurance policy for water in dry years. CU Boulder geography professor Mark 
Mark Williams is the lead author of the study. Welcome, Mark. Glad to be here. So how are these glaciers like having an insurance policy during bad years? What does that mean? Well, ice, glacier ice, permafrost, rock glaciers are like the capital in your bank account. And in general, on a normal year, you're melting snow and uh, taking that out of the system, but leaving the capital back there. On bad years, when you don't have enough snow, when it melts too early, you can melt some of that ice, take some of that capital out of your bank account so you have insurance in providing water when you need it, and also providing water at the right time in uh, late July, August, et cetera. How many glaciers are in Colorado? We have about eight in Colorado, and they're almost all on uh, Lee Zone, so they're, they're really filled by blowing snow. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, one we all know about is St. Mary's Glacier, but you say <laughs> that's not actually a glacier. Yeah, so here, here's the working definition that we use for glaciers. Uh, glaciers are ice, and St. Mary's Glacier is ice, but it's ice that moves. And St. Mary's Glacier is just a seep uh, that freezes and turns into ice and doesn't move. Uh, your study was backed by the National Science Foundation, and climate change is perhaps not surprisingly at the heart of your findings. Tell me more about that. Yeah, and I want to emphasize that uh, we're, our funding comes from a program called Long-Term Ecological Research. It's the only long-term program uh, funded by the National Science Foundation, and we've been studying climate up on Niwot Ridge since 1952. And what we've seen over that time period is that temperatures have increased uh, and that precipitation has also increased at high elevation, but not in the forested catchments. And is the melting of Colorado's glaciers something that can be reversed? Um, can glaciers <clears throat> make a comeback? And, and the likely scenario is no. What, what's interesting here is we've been uh, sort of characterizing the health of the glacier, measuring the health of the glacier since uh, the early 60s. And there was no change in the mass balance. That is, the capital of ice didn't change at all until 1998. Since then, we've had uh, negative mass balances in 12 of the last 14 years. The glacier is 20, 25 meters deep. We've lost a meter of ice over the last couple of years. Uh, almost likely, it's going to be gone in uh, two decades. Is this something that's happening everywhere? Is it limited to certain areas? Um, or, or is it happening where there are other glaciers? Uh, certainly in the western U.S. it's happening where there are other glaciers. Uh, we see the same thing happening in the Sierra Nevadas, uh, in Yosemite National Park. Uh, and essentially what's going on here is a change in climate, particularly driven by uh, warmer uh, spring temperatures and warmer uh, summer temperatures, one of the effects of that is earlier snowmelt, and that's a problem because it's providing water too early in the season when we don't need it. And, and what other consequences are there besides uh, possible water shortages during dry years? Um, what can we expect if the yeah. glaciers continue to shrink um, or disappear altogether? Yeah, and so the glacier ice itself is not a huge contributor to the water cycle here in Colorado. As I said, we have seven or eight small glaciers, and that's it. But it's a canary in the coal mine. It's telling us, it's giving us an example that climate is changing, and it's having all kinds of other effects on these ecosystems. 
Mountains are sentinels of climate change. We see the effects of climate change in mountain systems, particularly high elevation areas, earlier than we see that effect of climate change at low elevation areas. One of the things that we're seeing right now, which is interesting, is an invasion of shrubs into alpine tundra. Uh, And um, if we're losing this water insurance policy, um, could dams and reservoirs be created to store more water for Colorado? Uh, I know that's a pretty controversial topic. Yeah, and I've I've been interviewed a lot about uh, our results here, and that is one thing I always raise. We definitely need more storage. Big dams are not the answer. We don't have enough available water right now to fill our current capacity with large dams. But we need to think out of the box. One of the ways that we could increase storage is uh, recharging underground aquifers. And uh, there's pilot studies doing that. There's one over by uh, DIA where that's happening right now. And um, how can water managers um, use this data? And so it's an early warming system that says, uh, I'm going to use a big word here. So water managers predict water use and water availability based on past water histories. We call that stationarity, that the system operates the same way. With climate uh, change, we're in a non-stationary system. And so the past models on water availability will not work. And so this information provides an incentive to water managers to revise their models and take into account this non-stationary system where the climate's changing and it's affecting water availability. Are you working with water managers around the state, and what are they saying about this particular study? You know, we are we do work with uh, water managers around the state. In general, water managers work on water distribution. We work on water supply. And so uh, with another program that I'm involved with, we're working directly with the Colorado River uh, managers to provide better estimates of the amount of water stored as snow uh, today and into the future. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Hey, it was my pleasure. Mark Williams is a hydrologist and fellow at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. Now, a correction on an interview from Tuesday's show. Colorado Matters host Nathan Heffel spoke with State Representative Mike Foote of Longmont about an upcoming bill to challenge offshore corporate tax havens. In that conversation, we mistakenly referred to Greenwood Village-based Newmont Mining as Newport Mining. And finally today, a somewhat intimate request. Would you share an old love letter with us, one that swept you off your feet? We're working on a story for Valentine's Day. Email us, news at CPR.org, and we may be in touch. You don't have to reveal the identity of the sender, but maybe just a few irresistible lines. Again, news at CPR.org. That's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Our producers include Michael DeOanna, Nathan Heffel, Kareem Maddox, and Stephanie Wolf. Sam Brash is our fellow. Our audio engineers are Michael Hughes and Matt Hers. Theme music was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. 
Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of cprnews.org. Then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis.